unceasing prayer. And today, we're going to look at one more great theme of the New Testament epistles, and indeed of the scriptures, and that is the idea of the process of sanctification, the process of becoming, really, more like Jesus. Now, John MacArthur, in one of his recent sermons, he pointed out that there are various terms in the New Testament used to describe Christians. There is the term Christian itself, which means Christ follower or Christ partisan. There's the term believer, someone who trusts in, has faith in Jesus. We've already become familiar with the idea of children of God, being a child of God. Uh, and then there's also the term slave. One who has been bought by Christ, wholly belonging to him, wholly serving him. That's another way to describe Christians. But one of the most common terms, if not the most common term, is actually the term saint. Now, biblically, what is a saint? Can someone tell me? It's another term for believer, but it's the idea of holy one. It means someone who is holy or set apart. So a saint is a holy one. And the term is used throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament to describe believers. And the meaning of this term has become mutilated a bit through the ages. Today, in the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches, a saint is someone who's been formally recognized and voted on, canonized, as a super holy person. He does, he's done miracles, he or she, and he has earned great religious merit before God. And so these churches, the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches, they believe that Christians should venerate and pray to these superhero Christians. These saints, supposedly, because of their great uh, standing with God, they are able to intercede for regular believers, lower believers, with God and cause God to provide for the needs of those, those Christians. Of course, these beliefs are wrong on multiple levels, but they have affected what our society thinks of when it comes to saints. To most people, a saint is someone who is super holy, who has arrived to a level of godliness that mere mortals dare not even dream. And even if someone insists that he's a good person, he will say, but I'm no saint. No one would want to claim to be a saint. And yet, I think as you're already familiar, listen to how the Bible uses the term saint. Romans 16:15. Greek Philologus and Julia, Narius and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Or Ephesians 1:1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3:8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Or Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Or Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Perhaps the most surprising use of this term is 1 Corinthians 1, 2. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, why is that surprising? 
well, we know something about the, the believers at Corinth. They've got a bunch of problems, sin issues in the church and in their lives. And yet they can be said to be, by Paul, or rather, they can be said to have been, that's perfect tense, meaning something began in the past and is still true in the present. They have been sanctified, made holy, set apart by Jesus. And moreover, they are termed saints by calling. They've been called by Jesus as holy ones, even the believers at Corinth. And they're not unique. They're not alone because Paul says, I'm talking to you guys, you holy ones, who are just like all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus in every place. Every believer is sanctified by Christ and is called is a called saint. So we see clearly that when it comes to what the Bible has to say about saints, it's just another way to refer to believers, but with the emphasis that they are holy ones. They are set apart ones. And that includes you and me, if we know Christ. But you might ask, or you might say, wait a second, does saints, does holy one, does, does it refer to the holiness that believers already have through Christ? Or does it believe to the holy, or does it refer to the holiness that they ought to have as a result of salvation? Well, what's the biblical answer? Is the saintly status of a believer, does it refer to what Christ has done for them? or what they ought to do as a result of salvation. Yeah, biblically, the answer is both. It's both. And you may have noticed that those two senses are actually in some of the verses that I mentioned. Followers of Christ have already become set apart by Christ, but they are also called to be set apart, to act in a set-apart way. We can helpfully distinguish these two aspects of the Christian's saintliness, his holiness, with two theological terms. You've probably heard these before. Positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. On the one hand, positional sanctification refers to the once-for-all cleansing that believers have through Christ of all sin and unrighteousness. They are made holy, totally clean, totally pure and set apart. And we saw this in 1 Corinthians 1-2. Paul says, you believers have been sanctified. It's a once and for all act that took place in the past. You've been purified and set apart unto God and unto holiness and unto salvation and unto blessing. And though it's a one-time act, its effects continue into the present and even into eternity. And this is one of the reasons why the Christian salvation is so secure. Once he's been cleansed, nothing can make him unclean. Because he's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So that's on the one hand, the sanctification that is by position. On the other hand, there is progressive sanctification. And that refers to the progressive or the gradual process of cleansing that every true believer experiences in his life. Again, the Corinthian church is very illustrative. Though they are proclaimed to have been made holy by Christ, they are called throughout the letter to live as holy ones. Their behavior is to match up with what they have become in position before God. This is why we as Christians must, even though we've been made holy by Christ, we must still deal with the remaining sins in our lives. And we are to become more and more holy as we live. So this means sinning less. It means sinning in fewer areas. It means sinning in less extreme ways. 
Or to put it positively, it means doing more and more righteousness in more and more areas of life. And with uh, greater righteousness in heart and in word and in deed. Now, as with prayer, salvation, there is much misunderstanding when it comes to sanctification in the Christian life, especially progressive sanctification. Some today teach that progressive sanctification is unnecessary. You're already holy and acceptable through Christ. Why, why are you striving? Others teach that progressive sanctification is impossible without a second work of grace. You need to, you need to be baptized, to, um, you have a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, or you need to come to some profound spiritual realization that will make holiness possible in your life and even easy or automatic. And some even teach, on the other side, that progressive sanctification is not only possible, but it can be completed in this life. You can become perfect as a Christian, even sinless, they would say. But let's hear what the apostles in the New Testament have to say on the subject of progressive sanctification. And we're going to focus on three different passages today. Explore them to some depth, though I'm sure we won't be able to say everything that we could say about these passages. We're going to start with 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And we'll move over to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. And then finish with that famous passage in Ephesians, verses, or chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And let's get a better grasp on what it means for us to become progressively holy, to be saints in our lives. Let's pray before we go on. My Lord and God, I pray that you would help me to be able to explain this crucial concept well. God, you have called us as saints. You've made us into saints, but we are also to be saints and to become progressively holy. So I pray that not only would we be able to understand this concept, but we would be We'd be driven to fulfill this purpose that you have in us. That the people at Calvary and each one of us as believers we would become increasingly holy. For the joy that is set before us in this task, because it is your will. And Lord, we do need your spirit to do this. So be with us now. Amen. All right, let's first hear from the Apostle Peter in First Peter chapter 1. So please turn over there. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. Now, this, this book and this passage is probably more familiar to you than maybe some of the others because the pastor has been going through the book of 1 Peter. So you know the context. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. I'll find that myself. Begin, but second Peter. All right. Peter is writing to persecuted believers. He is exhorting them to persevere through suffering Persevere in holiness, persevere in sincere devotion to Christ for the sake of Christ's reward when Christ comes. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, Peter is blessing God, and he's directing the believers that he's writing to to think on two things. Think on the great future salvation that they will inherit in Christ, their Lord, and also to realize that Many in the past, many believers, even angels, have been longing to understand the great salvation that God had prepared and that is now revealed and believed on by believers in the world. So both the future aspect of their great salvation and the past aspect of the great salvation, everyone looking forward to it. Right after that, 
is our little passage. So let's pick up the text in verse 13. So 1 Peter 1, verse 13 and following. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right, just a small passage here, but let's make some observations, and then we'll proceed to interpretation and application. Notice the therefore verse 13 clearly indicates the relationship of these verses to what came before. The greatness of your salvation ought to lead to various actions in your life. And these actions are given to us by Peter in five commands. Notice that the first three commands, they all focus on the inner person. Peter first says, prepare your minds for action. Or your translation might say, what is more literal from the Greek, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, you might be familiar with this phrase, gird up your loins, from the Old Testament. It refers to that practice of gathering together excess fabric from your robe or tunic. Remember, they, they, they would wear those sometimes. and They would, they would extend down the, the legs. Gather up the excess fabric of your robe or your tunic into your belt so that your legs are unencumbered and you can run, you can fight, you can work, you can you do whatever action you need to. And that gives us our New American Standard translation. Prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind so that you can take action. Modern equivalent might be buckle up your mind or gear up your mind. That's the first command from Peter. The second command is keep sober. Keep sober in spirit. This is a good English translation of the Greek term. Don't be intoxicated. Be clear-headed. Be balanced. Be self-controlled in your inner man. And the third command is fix your hope. Fix your hope on a certain, certain truth. Now, there are many places that people might place, they might set their hope in today's world. But Peter says that Christians are to set their hope on a future grace to be brought by and revealed by Christ. Now, the term revelation, it says the revelation of Christ, that's the term apocalypse in Greek, and from which we get apocalypse. And that term just means revelation, unveiling, or disclosure, which is why we associate apocalypse with the end of the world because the book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title that was given to that book. And we see that same term being used here. The Christian is to fix his hope, fasten his hope, on the grace to be brought and, and received by the Christian at the future revelation of Christ. Now, what do these three reactions, these first three commands and reactions, have to do with holiness? We'll notice the latter two commands. These second, or these fourth and fifth commands, they're introduced under the metaphor of the family. Peter says, as obedient children. Children to whom? Children to God. Here again, we see that theme we've talked about previously. As Christians, we have become children of God. And therefore, ought to be obedient to our Father. What does this obedience look like? The two commands that follow clarify that for us. And they both have the idea of conformity. 
On the one hand, Peter says, do not be conformed to the former lusts in your ignorance. Now note the passive verb here that Peter uses. Do not be conformed. So the actor is not the Christian. It's someone else trying to conform the Christian. Peter's indicating there are forces or people or entities trying to conform you to your old lusts that characterized you in your ignorance. Now, when were Christians ignorant and conformed to their old lusts? What, what was this former state? This characterized the person before he believed in Christ. This is the person before salvation. Peter says, don't sit by and let forces try to push you into that old mold of what you were before you were saved. Don't be conformed back into the image of your previous life, where you followed your lusts and ignorance. Instead, gird up your mind, be sober, grasp your sure hope. Don't let yourself be pressed into the old image of sin and slavery to your fleshly desires. Now notice the term ignorance that Peter uses. He's making clear for us that this old way that we live, this is before we understood the truth, before we understood reality, before we understood what life really is, before we actually encountered God. Peter says, don't go back that way. Don't be conformed into the image or the mold of that old way. Now, if he has to say this, that implies that there's a need for this command. This says, this is a problem for Christians. We're going to experience this, these forces trying to do this to us. We can't just sit by. We can't just be passive. Or else we're going to be at the mercy of these forces. We see then that let's this sanctification process that is really being discussed here is not one where the believer can afford to be passive. He must actively resist conformity to his old life. And this fits with that idea of preparing your minds for action. You're going to have to actively resist being pushed back into the old mold. But it's not just resistance, because notice the second part. It says, do not be conformed to your former way, but be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Be holy, be set apart, be pure, be righteous. In what parts of life? In all parts, because he says, in all your behavior. This is to be comprehensive. Well, why? Notice the answer that Peter gives. We have a new pattern of conformity. Don't be like your old, evil, ignorant self, led away by unthinking desires, but be like what? Be like the Holy One who called you. Be conformed to the image of God. And this has always been the pattern of God's people. Peter ends this little section by saying, by quoting, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, where does that appear in the Bible? That concept appears in many places, but it goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, most famously in Leviticus. God gives these various commands about cleanness and uncleanness, or uh, what is right and what is wrong for the people of Israel to do. And then he follows it up by saying, be holy, for I am holy. I am the Lord your God. I am holy. Therefore, you are to be holy. God's design for his people has always been and is always that they should be conformed to his image, not to the image of the world, not to their old image that they followed when they were ignorant in their lusts. 
they are to be conformed into the image of his holiness. Now we've made these observations. Let's now take some of these details we've observed and try and answer some questions of interpretation. What is the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 13? This is not referring to the word of God in the sense of the Bible. This is referring to the second coming of Christ when he is revealed because he appears on the earth. Peter says, set your hope on that. That's the grace. At that time, you're going to be experiencing the grace, the vindication, the blessing, the redemption, the glorification, because Christ himself will come. He will be revealed to all the world. That's what Peter's talking about there. And you can see the connection to apocalypse is very apt, actually, in that sense. Second question, why the emphasis on the inner man in these verses? What does it have to do with the topic at hand? It says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and uh, set your hope. And this is instructive because it shows us that sanctification even progressive sanctification is a process that must be led by changes in the inner man. You have to orient your thinking in a certain way if you're going to proceed forward on the path of holiness. This corresponds well with what Paul writes in Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If we're going to be holy, it's got to start in the inner man. It's got to start in our minds, our hearts, our souls. Those are all terms that describe the inner man, the inner person. And so Peter's exhortations to that end, they're very important for us. Now, what is the true standard of holiness for mankind? In this passage, we can see that it is God himself. Being holy or set apart does not mean merely becoming good in the eyes of man or meeting some man-made standard. Nor does it even mean fulfilling various Old Testament and New Testament commands. You can fulfill certain commands in the Bible and still not be holy because to be holy really means to be like God. God. God is the standard of what is holy and right and good and pure. If you want to know what God wills for you, how he designed you to think, believe, feel, say, and do as one of his followers, then you must ultimately look to God himself. He is the pattern. He is the standard. This, by the way, is the reason why all of us are condemned outside of Christ. None of us can reach the standard of God. He's perfectly good. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans says. This is why we need a substitute to protect us from God's wrath. He's too holy, he's too good to accept anything that fails to meet his own standard. He cannot be with unholiness because he is so holy. If he did, he would compromise himself. But God is not only the standard of holiness, the goal of our sanctification is to be transformed into the very image of God. He's not just the standard by which we assess ourselves. He is the goal. He is the, the end point 
of our transformation. We, we desire, we are designed to resemble, to become like the very image of God. And this is very similar to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, speaking of Christ, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What is the goal of our progressive sanctification? It is to become like God. It is to become like Jesus. We are to resemble, we are to reflect the image of God. And wasn't that our original design at creation? We go back to Genesis 1. We hear that God made man in God's image. Man is an image bearer of God. He is to reflect the glory, the nature of God. He is a monument to display the Lord. But that image bearing function was marred by the fall and by sin. We couldn't, we couldn't properly manifest the image of God because we had rebelled against God. But through Christ, as we are saved, we are restored to that image-bearing function. We again can show God's glory to the universe as we resemble God and as we seek progressive sanctification before God. And as we've already seen, that is our ultimate end. What is the hope that John, the apostle, directs us to in 1 John 3? He says, when we look about what the when we look at, consider our destiny in the future, we don't know what we will be, but we do know that we will be like God. Why? Because we will see him as he is. And that's something to motivate believers. One day we will be conformed fully to the image of God. And his image is a beautiful image and we want to reflect him. Now, bearing the image of God means that holiness should be an increasing reality in our lives. But who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for our being conformed into the image of God? From this passage, what's the answer? We are. We are responsible to be conformed into God's image. Yes, all the power is from God. He's the one who's at work. He's the one ultimately who is conforming us into his image. But our obedience, our wills, our striving is the means. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't be giving these commands. He tells us, you've got to buckle up your mind. You've got to think soberly. You've got to set your hope on Christ appearing so that you can pursue the hard work of progressive sanctification. You have a responsibility in this. If you sit back, do nothing, and wait for God to transform you, you're not going to be transformed into God's image. You're going to be conformed back into the old image of your flesh because those forces are already at work against you. If you do nothing to conform yourself into God's image, then the forces that are against you will conform you into your old image. You see, sanctification is not like recovering from an illness where resting and inaction is the key to getting well. You know, sanctification, as is made clear throughout um, some of the metaphors the apostles used, sanctification is like athletic training. Strenuous activity is the way to your goal. 
You must build up the muscles. You must exercise. You must strive if you're going to be well. So brothers and sisters at Calvary, don't let yourselves be conformed into your old image of sin, but as God's child, be conformed into God's image as you pursue holiness in your life. This is something that you must do. Now, if your own effort is key, you might be asking, can I strive enough to reach perfection? Or if not, if I can't become perfect, no matter how much I try, what's the point? If the goal is to be like Christ, if I can't actually reach that goal, then why even try? Well, let's now hear from Paul. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. We've been in Philippians lately, so you might remember what this letter is all about. It's a letter of commendation and encouragement from Paul to the church at Philippi. He has a great relationship with this church. Paul's in prison, but he's commending them, encouraging them, also exhorting them to be unified in humble service and with the humble attitude of Christ. There were some conflicts and divisions in the church that Paul wanted to address. And in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul warns the church against false teachers who want to add good works and ritual observance to the gospel of faith. Paul counters in the beginning of the passage and right before our text, true salvation only comes by faith in the righteousness of Christ on the believer's behalf. Moreover, Paul goes on to say that he himself has sought to get rid of anything and everything in his mind, and in his life that prevents him from knowing Christ and being conformed into the image of Christ. I'm laying everything aside so that I can be conformed into the image of Christ. I want to know him and his power, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And right after that is our text. So look at verses 12 to 16. Philippians 3 verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let's observe a few things on, about this passage. As we noted, Paul has just been speaking about his desire to know and be conformed to Christ. But Paul immediately in the beginning of our text, denies that even he, a chosen apostle, great worker for the cause of Christ, he denies that he has fulfilled his desires to become perfect. He does not know Christ perfectly. He has not been conformed to Christ's image perfectly. Three times he expressly denies that. We might say, oh, how depressing. Not even you, Paul. You're not conformed to the image of Christ perfectly. What hope is there for the rest of us? But notice Paul's reaction to this. He does not say, yeah, it hasn't happened, so I'm just going to give up. No, we don't see that from Paul. We don't see him become jaded. We don't see him become depressed. We don't see him become frustrated. Instead, notice his firm resolve 
and incessant action. Verse 12, I press on. Verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on. Why, Paul? Why so much effort if you can't reach full perfection? Well, he gives us some reasons. Verse 12, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. But verse 13, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's got reasons to keep going, and he will keep going. He will press on. That's pretty intense. But someone might say, Paul, maybe it's just you. Maybe... Maybe your situation's unique. Maybe others have succeeded where you failed. Maybe they found the secret to perfection. Maybe. Well, Paul says three things that would be relevant to such a thought in verses 15 to 16. He says, let all those who are perfect have this same attitude, the attitude I've just described. He says, if you have a different attitude, God's going to show you. And let's keep living by the standard we've already attained. So we've observed these things from Paul. Let's ask some interpretation questions now. Paul says he presses on to lay hold for the very reason that Christ laid hold of Paul. So we should ask, why did Christ lay hold of Paul? He did have a plan for his life. What is Jesus's plan for Paul's life? That he would suffer and be a witness, right? In holiness. Jesus' plan, his purpose, his goal in laying hold of Paul was to make Paul an image bearer of Christ. He was going to display God's glory through Paul. He was going to display salvation through Paul. And he was going to conform Paul into Christ's image. And this goes right along with some of the teachings that we see from Paul and others in the New Testament. We are saved unto good works. We are saved to bring glory to Glory to God. We are saved to be conformed into Christ's likeness. That was the reason that Christ laid hold of Paul. Paul says, for that same reason, I want to press on. Paul says, Christ's purpose in saving me was so that I could display him, be conformed to him. I want to fulfill that same purpose. I'm not content to stay as I am. Christ wasn't content for me to stay as I was. He saved me. He began this process of sanctification, and I want to continue in that process. I want to fulfill the purpose for which I was called and for which Christ laid hold of me, plucked me out of darkness. I press on for that same reason. And he also says, forgetting what lies behind. What lies behind for Paul? To answer this question, we need to remember what came before in the context. When Paul says, I have laid aside everything, I counted all loss for the sake of Christ. And what was included in that? Certainly his old sins, his failures, his inability to reach God's standard in the past. He lays that aside, but also his seeming successes, his external achievements, his his, uh, Jewish pedigree. He lays that aside too. His whole old life is being laid aside. So that he might reach forward to what goes ahead, what lies ahead. Anything that gets in the way of pursuing Christ, Paul lays aside. There's no point, Paul, Paul indicates, 
There's no point in dwelling incessantly on the past, either in its victories or in its failures. The mind must continue to look forward. Onward is the heart cry. Not, I can't believe I did that terrible thing. Or, I miss the good old days. That's not Paul's attitude. I press on, he says, for what lies ahead. And part of what lies ahead is the goal for the prize of the upward call. Now, what is this? Paul says he, he strains ahead for the goal for the prize of the upward call. Well, Paul's goal was already stated, again, in the previous context. He wants to know Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ. That's his goal. But this goal is itself a prize. He strains toward to this goal, strains forward to this goal of Christ-likeness. He wants that. He desires that. He sees great joy in that. But there's more. You see, the concept of reward for faithfulness to Christ is all over Paul's letters, as it is indeed all over the New Testament. For pursuing Christ-likeness, there will be a reward. You may remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the difference between a, a, a religious hypocrite and a truly righteous person. And he says, your heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will do that and then he will reward you. When you don't look for the reward of men, you will be rewarded by God. Hebrews 11.6 goes so far to say, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is God is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He who comes to God must believe that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's basic to being a Christian and to following Christ. You strain forward for the reward that is with God. Now, what is this reward? New Testament describes it in various ways, as does the Old Testament. Various aspects to this reward. There's Christ's commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. There are crowns of victory, white robes, rule with Christ forever. That's all part of it. And of course, being made into the very image of Christ and seeing Christ as he is. Having a seat at the table with Christ. All of that is part of the reward. And that's what Paul's striving for. He not only presses on, in gratefulness for Christ saving him, and not only presses on in a desire to fulfill the original purpose of his being saved, but he also presses on in the process of progressive sanctification so that he might obtain the great heavenly reward that is with Christ, the maximum reward. So as Paul runs ever forward in the Christian race, the eyes of his mind are always looking upward toward Christ and toward Christ's reward. Now, what is Paul getting at in verses 15 to 16? These verses are a little puzzling. There are a couple different ways we can interpret them. My view in these verses is that Paul is being a little sarcastic. Because you see, we're in the context of dealing with false teachers. And false teachers often claim that they are able to attain perfection, either through unlocking some secret knowledge or by strict adherence to some law or to various rituals. We can become perfect if we just try hard enough or if we have this secret knowledge. But Paul says, look, if you guys were really perfect, if you guys were really mature, if you were really at a high level of faith and righteousness, you would understand that this is the attitude that you are to have. This is the way you, th you should think and behave. You should be following my example. 
don't tell me you've reached some special enlightenment and that you no longer need to pursue holiness. That's not what God's mature people do. And don't tell me you've already reached sinlessness. If you think you're all, if you think you're sinless, just wait for God to show you that you're not. And that you really just need to, you need to get back to basic adherence to God's standard. Look back to what you've already attained and just try and do that. You'll see that you're not perfect. Paul goes on to urge in verse 17, we didn't read it, but it comes right afterwards. He says, join in following my example and the example of those who think and act likewise. Follow the pattern you see in me and in those who are like me. So then, when we think about our own progressive sanctification today, we see here, our attitude should be the same as Paul's. We should be saying, just as he did, I'm not perfect yet. I'm not where I want to be or even need to be. No one can ever be perfect or fully sanctified in this life. But I can progress. I can fulfill more my calling in Christ. Therefore, I'm not just going to sit around. I'm pressing on. I want to please Christ. I want to receive the prize. I have no time to be caught up in my past successes or failures. If those things are going to trip me up, get me distracted, I can't stay there. I have to press forward, or press on, reach forward to what lies ahead. I want to become more like Jesus. That is the attitude that we are to have. Now, just to reiterate, progressive sanctification is not instant. Yes, salvation is instant. We are once and for all regenerated. We are once and for all saved. We are once and for all made holy by Christ. There's even an aspect of once for all in our repentance. We lay aside the old way, our, our own kingship of our life. But sanctification is a process of putting sin to death, casting off what entangles, and putting on righteousness. It's something that takes time, and it takes much effort. We're going to need time to uncover the idolatrous desires and thoughts that are in our heart, things that we didn't even know we had. But as we see them, we, we recognize them for what they are, and we cast them away. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort to actually learn what is the Lord's will for us. And we learn that in the scriptures. It's going to take time and effort to unlearn habits of sin and evil patterns of thinking that have become so ingrained in our lives because that's the way we formerly lived. Or we never had confronted those things before. So they've become the automatic ways that we react to certain situations. We have to unlearn those things. And conversely or complementary to that, we need to become trained in righteousness. If you look at the term training in the New Testament, it's instructive because you see that that's, that describes the progressive sanctification process. We must become trained as disciples of Jesus. And when we are fully trained, we will be like him, Jesus says. We have to establish new patterns, new righteous habits, new righteous patterns of thinking. That's going to take time. That's going to take learning. And that's going to take effort. We need Help. It's going to take time and effort to seek the help of those who have understanding and experience and godliness to give us counsel in our walk. It's going to take time to learn to pray, to learn to be dependent on the Lord, to learn to trust God in faith and to act on that faith. It's going to take time 
for us as we do each one of these things to see Christ and his glory more clearly. Now, that's not to discourage us from proceeding on the path of progressive sanctification, but it is an important reminder that it's not going to happen all at once. It's going to take effort. It's going to, it's going to take you doing just as Paul did. Press on. You're going to have to keep pressing on. But you have God's full resources to do this. God has given you his body, the church. God has given you his word. God has given you his spirit. <laughs> these things would otherwise be impossible. But we have these resources from God so that we can actually press forward. We can make progress. But the question is, do we take advantage of the resources God has given us? I fear that all too often, we are too busy with life and we are too caught up in our own indulgent pleasures to truly pursue sanctification. Too often, we do not have Paul's attitude of laying aside all those things that entangle and pressing forward. We don't have that attitude and therefore we become ensnared in sin. We afflict ourselves with many sorrows. We miss out on Christ's blessings. We miss out on eternal rewards. And some even become shipwrecked in faith. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that progressive sanctification is not optional. It is not something for just, all right, that's the pastor's thing, or that's what the you know certain special Christians do. No, this is for each one of us. We must proceed in this. It's for our own joy. It's for our own blessing. But there's so many sorrows and afflictions that we will experience if we do not. You see, sanctification is serious business. And to emphasize that point a little bit more, let's go to our last passage. Turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. This is a somewhat famous section of scripture where we hear the armor of God described. But these verses are very worth, very much worth another look, a closer look. Now, this passage is a little bit longer than some of the other ones. I won't be able to analyze it to the same depth, but I do want to point out a few things to you after we read it. Remember the context of Ephesians, Paul is exhorting the Gentile believers in and around Ephesus to live in a way worthy of their great salvation and to overcome the powers of darkness set against them. In chapter 6, Paul is giving his final exhortations and applications to this letter. And the very last section of application is the one that we're going to read, verses 10 to 20. Let's read it. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with a preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, 
Pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's notice a few things about our passage here in Ephesians. The main command overarching, hovering over this whole passage is be strong in the Lord and in his strength. You will not have sufficient spiritual strength on your own, Paul says. You need the Lord's. And gaining the Lord's strength involves putting on the full armor, the full set of armor of God. This is armor supplied by God. It is armor that comes from God, and it is for his people. But why do we need this strength? Why do we need this armor? Paul lays forth a very sobering situation in verses 11 to 13. We need this strength and armor because we need to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You mean the devil is scheming, scheming against you and me? Scheming against various believers? Yes, he is. And I think we often forget this. As conservative evangelicals, we have a tendency to downplay the devil and the demons because, on the one hand, we live in a science-obsessed society that sees anything involving the spirits or the supernatural to be naive superstition, and two, because we do know and we've heard of certain Christians who become so obsessed with the supernatural the, and even the demonic that they cower in fear or they pursue outrageous acts that are never advocated in Scripture trying to exercise demons or trying to bind Satan and do various things. And we don't want to be part of that. And so we, we downplay the demonic. But brothers and sisters, we've got to listen to the scripture. It tells us here, Paul tells us here, the devil is scheming against us. And notice he has schemes, plural. He doesn't have just one scheme or even two, but many. He has multiple angles of approach multiple angles of attack. He's honed his craft over many centuries. He has different tried and true ways of getting at believers. In fact, Paul urges us to consider the real nature of our struggle in verse 12. He says, it is not against flesh and blood. Now, flesh and blood, that's just another way to refer to people. Our struggle is not against people. This is another thing we forget, right? Our struggle is not against bad presidents, Evil dictators, Muslims, mass shooters, abortionists, fornicators, political parties, homosexuals, or even religious skeptics. Yes, they're involved in our spiritual struggle, but according to Paul, those people are not our real enemies. Against whom is our struggle? Paul says our struggle is against the demonic rulers of this world, the evil potentates, the exalted spirits that are the ones moving the people of darkness in our world, who are in control of this evil world system. Spirits so exalted in power and authority that they even dwell in the heavenly places. That doesn't necessarily mean in heaven itself, but in the, those exalted spheres, in the heavenlies, in the spiritual aspects and uh, spheres of the universe. These are very powerful and exalted beings, and they are against us. 
they are the enemies that are ready to assault us in the evil day. They desire to ensnare us in sin. They desire to rob us of all our salvation blessings. They want to kill, steal, and destroy. They want to deceive us. They want to make us ineffective as Christ's people. And they are very active in their pursuit. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to sit back, twiddle our thumbs, watch TV? No, we can't afford that. We must get ready for battle. We must seek to become strong in the Lord. We've got to put on his full armor. You can see how this same truth is connecting to our other passages. You cannot afford to be passive. There are forces working against you. So if you do nothing, they will succeed. We must become strong in the Lord so that when the evil days come, when we do experience days of temptation, intense assault, when we are pushed to doubt and to be discouraged and to be tempted away from the Lord, we will not go that way, but we will stand firm. We will not yield the ground to the enemy. We must become strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God. Now, what does it mean to put on the armor of God? We don't have time to look at each piece specifically. But I would say it's a twofold, twofold truth. To put on the armor of God means, on the one hand, to appropriate the gospel of Christ into your life. You gird yourself with the Lord's truth. You gird yourself with the Lord's peace. Christ has made me at peace with him. You gird yourself with the Lord's righteousness. I am fully righteous in the righteousness of Christ. You gird yourself with the Lord's body of faith. You gird yourself with the Lord's salvation. He has saved me. And you gird yourself with the Lord's word. So on the one hand, it's appropriating the gospel of Christ to yourself. But on the other hand, it is the practical application of the Lord's gospel in your life through sanctification. It's not only applying the indicatives of scripture to yourself, but it is also implying the imperatives. You gird yourself with truthfulness also. Because of the Lord's truth, you become truthful yourself. You gird yourself with a peacefulness. You maintain peace in your relationships, especially in the church. You gird yourself with a life of righteousness. You gird yourself with trust in God. You gird yourself with faith. You gird yourself with that confidence in the Lord's salvation in every trial and temptation. I know the Lord won't tempt me beyond what I'm able to bear, and he will provide the deliverance. You gird yourself with the very wielding of God's word as a weapon against the lies of the devil. You respond just as your Lord did when you see these, hear these, think these, encounter these false statements made against God, just as Jesus did in the wilderness. You respond with scripture and belief in that scripture. You say, no, I'm not going to rely on myself completely. I know my own responsibility, but the scriptures say I'm to live on the very words of God. I'm to wait on the Lord's provision. I'm to be dependent on him. So it is both of these aspects that are involved in putting on our armor. We trust Christ. And we live out that trust in practical sanctification. And in that way, we are made able to stand against the devil's schemes. He is not able to rob us of our blessings. He is not able to rob us of any of the joy that is following Christ. The devil and his co-minions, they will have to flee from us when we do this. 
And we are able to stand firm, even against their power, because the power of God is with us. Now, all of this must be coupled with, and we see this in verses 18 to 20, it must be coupled with desperate, constant, and all-encompassing prayer and petition to God. You know, it's really interesting. In verses 18 to 20, there are no main verbs in the Greek. They're all participles. They're all ing verbs to use the English equivalent, which means they're only describing the way that we do the above actions, that we become strong in the Lord and that we put on his armor. This is not a separate act. These things actually go together. As you're doing these things so that you can stand against the evil one, you are to be praying and not just for yourselves. You're to pray for your brethren and to pray for your leaders. Notice Paul asked specific prayer for himself. You might be like, well, Paul, come on, you're an apostle. You don't need our prayers. No, he says, please pray for me. Pray that I'll be bold. Remember, Paul's a prisoner at this time. He knows that he has had many opportunities to speak forth boldly, even before governors, and he probably will be able to speak before Caesar. He says, pray for me. I need your help against the spiritual forces. And this is true today, too. You know that your leaders, your teachers, they are a special targets or they are especially targeted by the enemy. If you can take down the sergeants and the captains, then all the other soldiers will be, be discouraged and be hurt. So Paul says, pray for me. And we need to pray for our leaders and we need to pray for our brethren. You know, we sometimes forget when we use the battle analogy, when we think about the armor of God, we think of it in a very individual fashion. And it is individual to some extent. We have a responsibility as individual soldiers. Each one of us must stand firm. But you know what? Soldiers almost never fight by themselves. They fight together with their comrades. That's what makes them an effective fighting unit. That's certainly the way that the Roman soldiers worked. It's the same for us too. We don't fight alone. We fight together with our brethren. This is how we stand firm. And so we've got to pray for one another. If a brother falters, we are going to be affected. But if a brother stands firm, then we ourselves are going to be strengthened. We've got to pray for one another continually and realize we don't go into battle alone. You can see why I say sanctification is serious business. Paul tells us this is the reality. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spirits of wickedness. We need the Lord's strength. We need the Lord's armor. We need to pursue sanctification. So let's sum up what we've seen today. From 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16, we saw that we've been called to conformity to the image of God. And this conformity comes through a reorientation of mind leading to holy action. From Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16, we saw that we are never to end our pursuit of holiness. Though we have not and will not ultimately reach perfection until we see Christ, we are called for the sake of the prize of Christ, for the sake of the purpose by which we were saved in the first place, to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, we see that sanctification is serious. It's an ongoing war against the devil and his hosts. We desperately need the Lord's strength, the Lord's armor, and the Lord's ear in prayer if we are to stand firm against every evil scheme and keep hold of every blessing that is ours in Christ through salvation. So what should be your application based on these truths? Let me give you a few thoughts in the form of questions for you to be thinking about as we close. 
Number one, do you recognize your calling to pursue ongoing sanctification in your life? God's will is for each one of you to be more and more conformed into the image of his son. Do you confess such to be true? And then does your life reflect that? Is this the reality of your life? Proceeding onward to become more like Christ. Number two, do you recognize that your own agonizing effort is critical in fulfilling God's will for you? Yes, we all want to avoid doing things in our own strength. We want to avoid legalism. We want to avoid self-righteousness. That's good. But that doesn't mean that we just lay aside all effort. If we believe God, then we will trust the Lord and then proceed forward in obedience. We trust that God, as I go out to the battle, you will provide the strength and you will provide the victory. This is the same way that God worked with Israel in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be the one that delivers you from your enemies. But you need to go out to the battle. Sometimes he did it without them going out, but most of the time he had them go out. Sometimes they went out and did nothing because then God intervened. Sometimes they went out and they they were wielding their swords and spears. That's the way it is for us. Our effort is God's means of making us more like himself. That comes from God. It's he who is at work in us. But we must recognize our need to strive. Number three, if you've reached a roadblock or a dead end in your sanctification, what do you think the Lord wants you to do? You say, ah, I just keep struggling with the sin. I can't find any victory against it. I just try and try and try and nothing ever changes. What do you think the Lord wants you to do? Use the resources that he's given you. Not just his word, not just his spirit, but his church. God gave you all these other fellow soldiers to help you in the fight. Will you not take advantage of them? You say, oh, I don't want to look bad in front of them. I don't want to discourage them. Listen, which is more important? You maintaining a facade of your own perfect righteousness, everything being perfect in your life, or you actually being faithful to God, your Lord, your Savior. Don't let pride prevent you from progressing in sanctification. Reach out to your brothers and sisters in the church and say, look, this is what's going on in my life. I need some counsel. I need some help. Show me what are some things that I can do to be free of this struggle or to make progress in holiness. God gave us the church. We are to take advantage of it. And if we don't, we're just going to keep afflicting ourselves, just going to keep afflicting our families. Now, God's going to let that happen sometimes. He says, until you learn, I'm going to let this happen. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord so that he can lift us up. And of course, this is all worth it. But do you see that? Each one of the passages we looked at today sets progressive sanctification in the context of our great salvation. What has already taken place and what will take place. That's to motivate us. That's to say, yes, I want to proceed in this, no matter how painful or difficult or how, how much hurt I must experience in order to progress. It's worth it. But do you see that? Will you pursue holiness in your life with all your might? Will you pursue Christ in your life with all your might? That's what God made you for. That's why he saved you. Now that's it for this week. But I do urge you to keep meditating on this. Next week, we come to the last subject of our 
of our curriculum's teaching in the last part of our chronological study of the Bible, and that is we begin to look at the return of Christ. So I hope you'll be with me next week. Let's pray as we close. Lord, this is this is serious truth. Lord, you have called us to be saints, to be set-apart ones, to be holy ones. This is not something we can accomplish by ourselves. We need you to accomplish this work. But God, we know that we are to have the same attitude as Paul, to get ready for action, to press on, to lay aside all that entangles. So God, I pray that you would do that among the people at Calvary and all those listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a little bit over extra today, so I thank you for your patience. But I was willing to see you next week.